Uh, we are in a year-long study in discipleship, and we're now in a subtext of or a subheading of discipleship. We're talking about worship. Uh, this is our third Sunday in worship. Last week, Chip uh, led us through a, a conversation, a sermon on, on why we sing and why the, the musical parts of worship are important for us. Uh, this morning, we're going to talk about worshiping God with our minds. So I invite you, if you have a Bible, to turn to Psalm 119. Uh, we'll get to that in just a couple minutes uh, and use that as a springboard to talk about what it means uh, to worship God with our minds. I was talking to a, a guy who grew up at Green Tree, is now an adult. I think he's probably 30 or 31 years old now. And uh, this was probably a conversation we had five years ago, and somehow we got on the topic of being a Christian in a secular university. He had gone to a state school, and he told me a story about an event that happened in his life when he was in one of the, the freshman class, you know, where you've got a class of like 200 or 400 kids in one, you know, huge lecture hall, and he was in this large class. I don't even remember the, what, what they were studying. And he said the professor started off the semester by saying, how many people in here uh, believe that the Bible is true? Right off the bat, he's like, okay, and I'm, is everybody staring at me, looking at me? He's feeling uncomfortable, but he raised his hand. And he looks around the room, and out of a couple hundred kids, there's maybe 35 or 40 of them that are raising their hands. After this, the professor just goes on a tirade. He just begins to rant against the Christian faith and how anybody that would believe a book full of myths is an idiot and an anti-intellectual and just a fool, and how on earth could you possibly believe that nonsense? And he does this for several minutes, and then he says, now, let's try again. How many of you in this room consider yourselves Christians and believe in the Bible? And this young man thought, I got to do it. And he raised his hand, and he and one other young woman in the class raised their hand. So we went from somewhere between 35 and 40 to 2. And the professor looked at the two of them, and he said, I have tremendous respect for the two of you because I didn't believe a word I just said. I just wanted to see how committed you were to what you believed. So you're not going to get anywhere in life if you're not committed to what you truly believe. Now, I, you could say that's a cruel hoax. You, you could say that that's kind of playing a little bit dirty, but I think it makes a great point. Worship of God is not just restricted to our emotions. Now, our emotions are a huge part of our worship. You know that at some point this morning, chances are I'm probably going to tear up over something. You know, a football game, I mean, it was whatever. The, the, the Rams record up to this point, I'm going to get a little, you know, I'm going to get a little teary over something. I would be the last person to say that we ought not be emotional when we worship God. But as we come together on Sunday mornings and as we, as we perhaps in a, in a small group Bible study per se, or uh, even as we sit in our, in our own home or in our office and, and open our Bibles and, and read the Word of God just individually, we are worshiping God. That's part of our journey of discipleship. And it, it's what brings spiritual health to our bones. The more that we know and understand God's word, the, the safer ultimately we will be. It's not just a question of knowing more just for the sake of knowing more, but rather it's the sake of knowing and understanding God's word so that as we face circumstances and situations, whether it's on a college campus with a professor, whether it's uh, in our marriage, whether it's raising our children and our business, the scriptures, the word of God apply to every aspect of our lives. How can I apply something I do not know? 
we've been going through this, you know, kind of the plans for our, for our building uh, that, that we're, we're hoping and praying that the Lord would lead us into in the next year or so. And we get into this conversation about the engineers are talking about, you know, different structural stuff. You know, and I kind of sit there and I, and I shake my head like I know what I'm talking about. I have no idea what these guys are talking about. Chip got into a, to a, to a conversation with the sound and, and lighting guys, and they started using all these numbers and letters. They're like, oh, everybody knows it's the D7419. And I'm going, yeah, everybody knows it's the D94. I have no idea what we're talking about. None whatsoever. How could I possibly apply that to my life? You get a conversation about the things of life very practical things that we meet head on every day. If we don't know God's word, if we're not worshiping with him, him with our minds, how can we apply what we do not know to that which is most important? So this morning we're going to look at parts of Psalm 119. The title of this sermon is 22 Great Reasons to Worship God with Your Mind. I wanted to let you know right off the bat that we're only going to cover four of those 22, so you can rest a little bit easier. But Psalm 119, just to give you a little bit of background, a little bit of context, is divided into 22 equal stanzas of eight verses in each stanza. It's the longest book in all of Scripture, and it's divided into this way because there are 22 letters in the ancient Hebrew alphabet, and if you have a study Bible of any kind and you're looking at it right now, you'll notice that there are little words in front of each one of these paragraphs, and those words stand for, they're the alliteration of the, the Hebrew letter in the alphabet for that word. And so what the, what the psalmist has done here is he has, he has made a bit of a song, he's made a bit of, a, of an instruction, a, a teaching, he's made some poetry out of uh, the alphabet of the uh, ancient Hebrews, and he's concentrating on words. He's concentrating on the word. Psalm 119 is about the word of God. <clears throat> so what we're going to do is we're going to look at four examples of what it means to worship God with our minds and how we can apply it to our lives. C.S. Lewis said this about Psalm 119. It is not and does not pretend to be a sudden outpouring of the heart. It is a pattern, a thing done like embroidery, stitch by stitch, through long, quiet hours for love of the subject, and for the delight in leisurely, disciplined craftsmanship. This psalm is a psalm that is meticulously woven together. It's a psalm about the law of God, the word of God. The first is the psalmist wrote, he was thinking about the first five books of our Bible today, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. He was thinking about the Torah, the law of God. He was looking at God's plan for redemption. And so it's appropriate for us to, uh, to study uh, this study of God's law. But before we do that, let me pray for us, and then we'll jump in. Father, I thank you for uh, the experience that that young man had, even though the, the professor was uh, uh, kind of yanking their chain a little bit. But it, it, he, he told me later, he said, it caused me to think about what I really know to be true and where I'm really going to take my stand in life. Father, that was partially because he was brought up in a place that honored the Word of God and, and taught it to him in his home, uh, as well as here at Green Tree Community Church. And Father, I thank you, and I'm humbled by the fact that you would allow us to, to have that impact on people's lives. Uh, Lord, I was, I was laughing the other day at, a, at, at the story of a high school girl uh, here who didn't have to, to study for a test about the books of the Bible because she learned them here in second grade. 
she actually got to do less homework that night. But Lord, I, I thank you that this is a place where your word is, is lifted up for what it is, ultimate truth. And it's your word of redemption. It's your word that brings hope to our lives. Father, we hear lots of words all week long. We utter lots of words throughout the week. More often than not, it would seem that many words are inconsequential and, and carry no real weight. They're just one more person's opinion. So, Father, we need to hear the word of life. That <clears throat> is that for which we long this morning. So, Father, help us to worship you with our minds. Forgive me for my sins, Lord. Don't let me stand in the way of what you want to teach us this morning, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Excuse me. So we're going to start in verse 33 of Psalm 119, and we're going to take just four of these paragraphs, and we're just going to make one point on each one of them. The scripture here is on the, on the screen. If you don't have a Bible, you can follow along there. Psalm 119, verse 33 through 40, then we'll stop and talk about that, and then we'll, we'll go on to the next. So this is, this is under the Hebrew uh, letter Hey, Aleph, Beit, Gimel, Dalet, Hey. It's the fifth letter. And the Hebrew alphabet, teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I will keep it to the end. Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. Lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Incline my ear to your testimonies, and not to selfish gain. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things, and give me life in your ways. Confirm to your servant your promise that you may be feared. Turn away the reproach that I dread, for your rules are good. Behold, I long for your precepts. In your righteousness, give me life. Now, before I launch into this, let me just say that in each one of these sections, there are probably 10 or 12 or 15 or 20 different teaching points you could pull out. I'm just going to give you one in each section. It doesn't mean that there aren't... I, you could, I could preach a sermon series for, for five weeks on this section of Psalm 19, but for our purposes this morning, I'm going to give you one point and one application per section, but that doesn't mean it's the only one. But the one I want to share with you this morning under this section of Scripture is that the psalmist is, is praising God and asking God to keep him from a self-indulgent life and move him into what is really life. Now, the letter hey in the, in the ancient Hebrew alphabet when it was attached to a verb, as it is in, in every one of these first words of this, of this paragraph, is in the causative case, which means the, the author is talking about something that should happen. In this case, he's asking for the Lord to make something happen, to cause something to happen. That's why it's the, the causative case. So what he's saying here is, Lord, would you please do something in my life? And you look at the words that, that begin these, these uh, sentences, teach me, give me, lead me, incline my heart, turn my eyes, confirm in your servant, turn away. You see him asking God to cause certain things to happen in his life. And as I said, there are several of them, but for our purposes, what I want to look at for just a moment is in verse 36 and 37, incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things. What the psalmist is, is doing here is he is acknowledging that only God's power can help him overcome his weakness. <clears throat> his weakness is he's selfish. Now, we can probably just stop because there's nobody selfish here, right? <laughs> 
I've been, I've been reading a book on generosity lately, and I've been coming to the conclusion that I'm a lot more selfish than I would care to admit, uh, but we'll get to that in the, in the sermon series a few weeks from now. But the psalmist looks at his life, and he says, I'm like anybody else. I kind of want what I want when I want it. I, I have a low tolerance for, for not getting it my way. That describes pretty much every person that's ever walked on the planet. Maybe we've learned to control it. Maybe we've learned to kind of manage it some way. Maybe we've learned to, to, to be polite about our selfishness and kind of cover it up and, and gloss over it a little bit, kind of deflect it towards other people when, when, when the criticism arises. But down deep inside, we need a power from alien from us, from the outside coming in to work on our selfish hearts. And he even goes so far as to say, turn my eyes from looking at worthless things, from things that carry no weight, the things that, that ultimately have no importance. And the conclusion he draws is if, if you teach me, if you lead me, if you, if, you, if you turn me, if you do these things in my life, I will be saved from my own selfishness. I'll be saved from pursuing what ultimately is worthless. So that made me stop and think, how much time do I spend in my day pursuing that which is most valuable? How much energy do I put towards really seeking to know God and to, to love God and to be in a relationship with God through the study of his word, through worshiping him with my mind? How much of my everyday thought does God actually control? How much of, of the thought process that, that goes through my mind, whether, whether I'm sitting and talking with someone in maybe like a pastoral counseling situation, or whether I'm, I'm coaching a hockey game, or whether I'm on a date with my wife, or whether I'm trying to give one of my kids advice over the phone, pick any set of circumstances you want. Put yourself in those circumstances. How much of that does God control? Well, it depends on how much time I, I, I spend learning his value system instead of the world's value system. It really depends on how much time and, and, and how much I allow God to have that kind of influence in my life. And so the psalmist rightly says, Lord, I want to sit at your feet. I want to be influenced by you. I want your word, your authority to come into play in my life. Um, I, I was listening to a friend talk last night, and he was, he was talking about the world's value system versus God's value system. This isn't a person who's a, a preacher, a theologian. He's, he's a, uh, just a friend and um, runs a business. And he was saying, you know, it would be like if, if my wife and I moved out of our house for two years and we moved across the street to an apartment, and for two years we just poured thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars, just kind of like everything we had, uh, into the apartment. And then when we moved into the house, we had nothing, we had nothing left. We, we, couldn't, we couldn't take care of the, of the permanent place we live. And he's saying, that's what it's like to, to embrace the world's values. We pour everything into this life, which is but a blink of an eye, and we don't think about our investment in eternity. And I was like, wow, that, that's such a great point. And the psalmist realizes that God's word can cause certain things to happen in his life if he's willing to sit under that teaching to expose himself to God's word, and it will keep him, it will protect him from inclining his heart towards selfish gain and turning his eyes towards worthless things. Not a self-indulgent life, but a real life in relationship with God. The second passage we're going to look at in this text, skip down if you would to verse 49. Uh, the Hebrew letter there is Zion, and here are verses 49 through 56. Remember your word to your servant in which you have made me hope. 
This is my comfort and my affliction that your promise gives me life. The insolent utterly deride me, but I do not turn away from your law. When I think of your rules from old, I take comfort, O Lord. Hot indignation seizes me because of the wicked who forsake your law. Your statutes have been my songs and in the house of my sojourning. I remember your name in the night, O Lord, and keep your law. This blessing has fallen to me that I have kept your precepts. Uh, One author wrote the following, The further you look back, the further you can see into the future. I thought that was a fascinating comment. His point was, history is a great teacher. Uh, And and I took that, and and I really want to make it personal because the author of the psalm makes it personal. My history is important. Your history is important. To be a student of my own history, to learn from my mistakes, so to speak, to, to remember the things that were done well and to try to continue that as a pattern in life, but also to remember kind of times when you stepped in it and you really blew it, you really messed up and say, you know, I want to avoid that mistake again in the future. We should be students, not just of world history, but we should be students of our own history because the idea here is remembering. The idea here is remembering when you get in the moment of trial, when you get in the moment of stress, whether it, in this particular case it seemed to be persecution from those who, who vehemently dis- disagreed with the author uh, and didn't have his same worldview and, and had no use for God. It could be that kind of persecution or it could be the, the kind of despair that comes from, uh, from being unemployed. It could be the kind of despair that comes from, from bad health. It could be the kind of despair or anxiety that comes from broken family relationships. You can kind of fill in the blank any way you want to, but the idea is remembering what God has promised and done in the past and apply that to my present day and my future circumstances. What is the psalmist asking? Lord, remember what you have promised. That's the very first word. Remember your word to your servant in which you have made me hope. The author of the psalm is saying, hey God, just to make sure we're clear, remember the promises that that you've given, and, I, and he could be going back to the book of Genesis and the covenant promises that God gave Abraham. He could be going back to the book of, of Exodus and looking at the promise that God made to bring the people of, of Israel out of the bondage of slavery in Egypt and into the promised land. He could have been looking at the promises that are in the law that if you follow me and trust me, I'll bless you, I'll keep you safe, I'll be your protector, I'll go before you, I'll surround you from behind, I'll care for you. He could have been looking at any number of hundreds of promises that are found in the law, but he's saying, Lord, now you were serious, right? (laughs) Have you ever had that prayer? If if you've been a Christian more than 10 minutes, you've had this prayer, right? Lord, I'm in a I'm in a bad spot. Now, you, you said I could trust you. Is that really true? What are we calling on God to do? God, would you please remember what you said? Would you please remember so, so that my trust is not in a, in a shaky place? But notice what else the psalmist says. He says, this is my comfort in my affliction that your promises give me life. The psalmist says, if I have any hope at all, it's not in my ability to figure this out. It's not that my circumstances will get better. My circumstances may say exactly the same. That's not what gives me life. What gives me life is that I can trust in you. That ultimately in this life, you are walking beside me. You are caring for me, and you will get me home. And even through the dark clouds of the storm, I can trust that. And then what is his prayer in verse 55? I remember your name in the night, O Lord, and keep your law. Lord, help me remember what you have done in my past. 
so that I can apply that to, to the present struggle and I can take comfort and I can derive peace from the fact that I've seen what you've done before and you are a faithful God. You'll continue to be faithful. We were the group of people last night and we were asking people about uh, stories of generosity. And the question was, when have you been uh, the object of somebody else's generosity? Or uh, can you remember a time when you've helped somebody else out and share that? And it was interesting that most people shared stories of when they were objects of somebody else's generosity. And one person told a story about when they were in graduate school and didn't have two nickels to rub together. Uh, A certain uncle would bring them over for Sunday lunch and give them lunch every week. And then before they were leaving, they would like pack up the grocery bags and give them all the leftovers and then some to kind of make it through the week. And they remembered how just every Sunday, they, they knew that they could count on that. And just what an incredible blessing was to it. I heard another guy talk about uh, his two daughters, and, and the one daughter uh, took about half of her money and gave it to her sister, which wasn't, she didn't have very much money, but gave half of it to her sister who, who was going on a missions trip. And you do those kind of things, you remember those kind of things, and they cause you to want to be generous to other people. I hear those stories and I go, I want to look for people to help. I don't, I don't just think, you know, gosh, wasn't that great for them? It's like it, it motivates me. It, it, it spurs me on. When you remember, when you can look back at what's happened in the context of the present struggle, you're strengthened in your faith. You're strengthened in, in trusting in God and getting through those moments of great difficulty. I find it fascinating that some people preach that if you become a Christian, nothing bad ever happens to you. <laughs> You become a Christian, the world still goes on, and difficult things still happen, but now you can look at the promises of God and know ultimately at the end of the day, he's going to bring you home. So one application for worshiping God with our mind is that we would not be self-indulgent. A second is that would be protected from despair. The third that we're going to look at is found in verses 129 through 136, which is the letter pay, and 129 through 136 says this, your testimonies are wonderful, therefore my soul keeps them. The unfolding of your words give light, it imparts understanding to the simple. I open my mouth and pant because I long for your commandments. Turn to me and be gracious to me, as is your way with those who love your name. Keep keep steady my steps according to your promise and let no iniquity get dominion over me. Redeem me from man's oppression that I may keep your precepts. Make your face shine upon your servant and teach me your statutes. My eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. In this particular passage, I want to look at the verses, uh, verse 133, where the author of the Psalms realizes how easily he's enslaved to sin. Where he realizes that, that there is a proclivity in his life to do that which displeases God. To do that which, according to actually in the first section we looked at, is selfish in its very nature. It serves only him. And he understands that he can actually be dominated by this this passion to do what he wants to do for himself. And this is a question that, too, I think a lot of us ask in our lives. And and even if you're not a Christian this morning, even if you don't put the title to the word as as sin, we all look for ways to get better, do we not? Some of us call it self-help, self-improvement, the power of positive thinking. Some of us look from within ourselves and our own strength and our own energy, but the idea here is that, that, that we would get better. Those of us of the Christian faith understand that that's a losing proposition. 
Those of us who have been confronted by our sin and its depths and the degree to which humanity is broken, and we see that most clearly not when we look at the pages of history, but when we look in the mirror and see what's looking back at us. We understand that we are easily captured by our own willful desires. Probably the, the, the best Christian that ever walked on the planet, this probably shouldn't put it that way, but we will for the sake of the point, was the Apostle Paul. You look at everything the Apostle Paul did in starting new churches and sharing the gospel. Ultimately, he died for his faith. Ultimately, he, he was murdered for being a Christian. And if you go and you look at Romans chapter 7, you see Paul's honest confession of who he is. And towards the end of chapter 7 in Romans, he says, the stuff that I want to do, that I should do, the stuff I know I'm supposed to do, I, I can't ever get the strength to do it. And the things that I absolutely know I shouldn't do and should avoid like the plague, those are the things I keep on doing. And he concludes that section of Scripture by saying, oh, what a wretched man I am. Who could possibly save me from this body of sin and death? He wrote earlier in his life the book of Galatians, and he put it this way, the Spirit, the, the spirit of God is at battle with your flesh, and your flesh is at battle with the Spirit of God. And he's talking to Christians. He's not talking about people that don't have faith in Jesus. He's talking about disciples. He says that's why you don't do what you want, because you still wrestle with these sinful desires. And we would be wise to stand next to the psalmist this morning and say, that's me. I am a one who is easily compromised. I am one that, that, that allows iniquity to gain dominion over me. And I need the power of God to overcome that. I can't do it on my own. And so that takes us back to the first verse of this section, verse 21, excuse me, 29, where the psalmist says, your testimonies, your words are wonderful. And the word he uses there for wonderful, it's not like you're looking at the Grand Canyon, this majestic scene, you go, oh my gosh, that's wonderful. It's not like you're looking at a, a newborn baby uh, who you know, has just been born, is wrapped up in the cloth and the, with, with mom there and, and before all the other stuff happens and raising those children to become adults. You look at that and you go, that's really wonderful. That's not the word that the psalmist used here. The word that the psalmist used here is your testimonies are superhuman. Your testimonies are supernatural. Your testimonies carry more power in them than all the power in the entire universe. It's like, it's like Superman. <laughs> Your testimonies have superhuman strength. Therefore, I can say that I keep steady in my steps. Why? According to those supernatural promises. And let no iniquity get dominion over me because as, as, as sin seeks to dominate, as powerful as sin is, and you have no power to control the sin in your life apart from the Word of God and the Spirit of God. And you may not believe me this morning, but trust me, it is true. Go out and just do this. Go out for the next week and try not to say one thing bad about another person. Just do that one thing for me. Just do it for a week. I've told you a story before about a guy who came back successfully after getting that challenge, and, and he said, I did it. I didn't say a bad word, and the, the teacher said, how'd you do it? He said, I haven't said a word since last week. <laughs> I've just been silent. And the teacher said, did you have any bad thoughts? Did you think critical of other people? He goes, guilty. <laughs> you can't control your sin. I can't control my sin. It's going to dominate us unless something more powerful comes along and rustles it to the ground and subdues it, and that's what we have through the cross of Jesus Christ and the power of the word of God in our lives. And that's why Paul writes in 2 Timothy, the word of God is profitable for all things, for doctrine, for reproof, 
for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the person of God may be thoroughly furnished for all good works so that sin won't dominate you. The psalmist says, I'm easily enslaved to sin, but your word, and the reason I want to sit in your word, the reason I want to worship God with my mind is it protects me from that enslavement. My fourth and final observation comes in verses 161 through 168. And it's actually a, a, a dual uh, letter here, seen sheen, or actually the, the little words that are written above this. Princes persecute me without cause, the psalmist writes, but, your heart, but my heart stands in awe of your words. I rejoice at your word like one who finds great spoil. I hate and abhor falsehood, but I love your law. Seven times a day I praise you for your righteous rules. Great peace have those who love your law. Nothing can make them stumble. I hope for your salvation, O Lord, and I do your commandments. My soul keeps your testimonies. I love them exceedingly. I will keep your precepts and testimonies for all my ways are before you. The idea here is an idea of focus. We have a lot of distractions. There are plenty of, of spiritual distractions in our lives. You think about just managing your time. I think it, you know, one, we're going to talk next week, we're going to talk about personal worship. We're talking about individual worship, where I just sit down with God's Word, or maybe a study book, whatever, and I just spend time in the, in the Word of God and in prayer, and, in, and I, you know, I can kind of sing quietly where nobody else can, can hear me, but, but taking time to worship God individually. And the idea here is that it gives us a chance to focus the rest of our world through the lens of God's Word. But we all know what a challenge it is just to have the time to do that. We, we know the distractions that come from the instant connectivity that is in our world today between Twitter and, and tweeting and, and Instagrams and Facebook and all this stuff. You know, I, you look at your Facebook page and somebody says, I'm staying in the grocery store trying to decide which can of tomato soup to buy. And you're like, really? You know, Campbell's, who cares? <laughs> but there, there's so much, you know, distraction out there that you can hardly sit down and, and have a meal with somebody or, or get a, alone and get a little bit of quiet time without your phone pinging and going off and telling you the latest, just absolutely essential news that you have to have. We're, are, there's just a lot of noise in the world. And interestingly enough, this section in Psalm 119 is the only section that actually doesn't begin each verse with the letter that is entitled, The Difference Grabs the Reader's Attention. It's almost as if the psalmist is, is distracting the reader and saying, are you really paying attention to what's going on here? Are you really watching? Because I'm using some different uh, word formations than I've used before. And, and, and he's forcing the reader to pay close attention. To focus on the word lest he or she miss the message. And the message is in every area of your life, you bring to bear God's word. And the only way you can do that is to focus on it. But as you focus on God's words, what happens? You have peace. You have, you have the ability not to stumble. All right? Great peace have those who love your law. Nothing can make them stumble. Why? Because they see the pathway clearly. I was on study break uh, uh, about a week and a half ago, and I was down in South Alabama in the middle of nowhere, uh, 5,000 acres all by myself, and I was walking down a pathway because I was hard, stu I was studying really, really hard, and I had a fishing pole in my hand. I can't quite figure out how that happened, but um, as I walked down the pathway, which was a little bit of grass and a lot of like brown rocks, I was, I was stepping, and, I, and as I stepped here, about three feet in front of me, I, I just got out of the corner of my eye and went, that's a different color. And I looked over, and it was a real, real, real bright copper 
that was about that big around was about that long. <laughs> it was a copperhead snake just laying on the pathway waiting for, me to, waiting for me to walk by. If I hadn't been focused, if I hadn't known what to look for, Cindy always makes fun of me for being a Boy Scout. If I hadn't known what to look for and been prepared, I might have I had to try and figure out how to get out of the middle of nowhere with a snake bite. wouldn't have been all that great uh, of an exercise. As it turned out, Tom won and the snake lost. But focus. It's knowing what you're seeing. Understanding it for what it is. As we allow God's word to be the focus of our lives, it's the lens through which we look at the world. It brings a peace and it brings safety to a very dangerous journey. Because it influences every, every aspect, every nuance of our life. I mentioned that I was in South Alabama for a while. We ended, I ended that study time by meeting Cindy in Birmingham, and we went over to Tuscaloosa where our son Jordan is a senior at University of Alabama. And I've never been to a college football game, much less football game at University of Alabama. And last Saturday, a week ago, we got to go and watch them play Ole Miss. I'm sorry to my good friend Jim Schmidt. They really thumped them bad. But um, I've never experienced anything like this in my life. This, this place is crazy. The stadium holds 105,000 people. 200,000 people show up for the tailgate party. I mean, what are the other 95 going to do? Oh, they're just going to sit out and watch the game and, and, and eat, you know, eat their sausages and you know, have their drinks and, and enjoy their time. And everywhere you went, the focus was laser keen. Every sentence, every conversation began and ended with the same thing. Roll Tide. Hey, how you doing today? Good to see you, Roll Tide. I'm doing well. How's little Susie? She is great, Roll Tide. Thank you so much for asking. Hey, can I, can I get you a couple brats, Roll Tide? I mean, every sense. I, I, this is true. I go up to the hot dog stand at the football stadium. And the guy looks at me and goes, I said, I, I want a hot dog and I want a bottle of water. And he goes, you want that hot dog fully loaded or do you want that hot dog empty, Roll Tide? <laughs> I said, I'll just take a plain Roll Tide. I just I jumped in with everybody else. This is unbelievable. They kick the football off and it's roll tide roll. The announcer says, first down Alabama. And everybody says, roll tide. There is nothing besides that. The whole world. In fact, I, I Googled the CSPN made a commercial on this a couple years ago. Go, just type in roll tide commercial and watch it. And you'll look at it and you'll go, these people are insane. But they didn't make that stuff up. The entire state of Alabama is so focused on this football team. They see everything through that lens. Now, take that really silly example and tie it to our lives. What if every, every sentence of our life was God's word? <laughs> what does God's word say? I'm really struggling with my marriage. How do I learn to love my wife through God's word? <laughs> I'm really struggling with a business partner, and I, and I think he's done me wrong. How do, how do I love him but also do the thing that's wise? Oh, through God's word. What if every aspect of our life was really controlled by the worship of God's word. I think I'd be a really different person. Something to think about. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the incarnate word, even Jesus, who became flesh and came and lived among us. Father, I thank you for that word that penetrates our hearts and our souls and our minds. And Lord, I thank you that you have not just given us that word and then left us alone, but you have given us the eternal word of God in the scriptures. Father, I pray that we would worship you with our minds. Father, I pray that our faith would not just be an emotional faith, although our emotions are important. It would not just be a song we sing, although the songs we sing are vitally important. 
But Lord, that your word would penetrate our hearts and our minds. Father, I know that as we were studying your word this morning, all of us could think of examples where, where we need your word so desperately in our lives. Maybe it is our marriage. Maybe it is our business. Maybe it's a struggle with one of our kids. Maybe it's a friend that we, we've ended up at, at odds with. Maybe it's uh, a habit of just lying and not telling the truth uh, or hiding things from others and, and pretending to be one person when we're really someone else. Father, every one of us can come up with examples where we need your word. So, Lord, teach us to worship you with our minds. Teach us to sit at your feet and to be instructed by you. For your glory and for our good, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we come to the Lord's table this morning, we come to the Word of God. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And Jesus, as the Word of God, gives life to our very souls. And that's exactly what this table represents. This table is not Green Tree's table. If you're here this morning, you're a disciple of Jesus, we invite you to this table. If you're here this morning, you're wondering what it means to be a Christian, you're not convinced yet, don't feel like you have to go through some religious thing because you're in a religious place. We invite you just to, to, to sit and to contemplate what's been shared this morning. But for all of us who have put our faith in Christ, for all of us who are, are trusting him alone for our salvation, it's a day where we come and we feed on the word of God. So remember the words that Paul passed on to the Corinthians when he said, The night in which the Lord was betrayed, he took bread, and after he had given thanks, he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples, and he said, This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And after he took the cup, and when he poured it, he passed it to his disciples. He said, All of you drink from this. This is the covenant of my, uh, the new covenant of my blood, which is shed for the remission of sins. All of you drink from it because as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So because we've been studying the word of God this morning and, and that uh, words of institution, as we call what Paul said, ends with we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That word proclamation just made me think this week it would probably be good for us to proclaim our faith as we come to the table this morning, to actually say the word. And one of, one of the most historic and beautiful ways to do that is through the Apostles' Creed. So we're going to put that on the screen. I want to invite all of you to stand. And if you would join me, we're going to confess out loud the word of God. Christian, what do you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we set these elements apart from their common use, nourishing us physically. And we ask, Lord Jesus, that as you are present spiritually in these elements, that you as the living word of God would nourish our souls. We pray in your name. Amen.